one thing I used to say, it's so hard to have so many users. But of course, not having users, you don't really want that. <laughs> this is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm joined today by Rajat Monga, who is one of the early co-creators of TensorFlow. Rajat, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Pleasure to be here. You know, I think we're all excited about this one. TensorFlow almost needs no introduction. It's a massive project, maybe even a family of projects by some degree. To start us off, maybe you could tell us just briefly how you describe TensorFlow to people, and then we can get into the story of how it came to be. Yeah, the goal for the project was how do we democratize machine learning? And, uh, you know, where it is today, it's definitely well on its way towards that goal. In terms of, you know, what it does or what it is, it's a platform for machine learning and offers all sorts of tools and uh, capabilities for different kinds of things, you know, from training new models all the way to deploying them in, you know, you can train models on large scale supercomputers and deploy them on really tiny microcontrollers. So there's a huge span of things that you can do with this. How did this happen? If I had to guess, I believe the TensorFlow story, I was at Google when TensorFlow first emerged. Of course, you were as well. And if I had to guess, it's almost closely tied to the Google Brain team and project. Is that right? That's correct. It came out of Google Brain and in fact uh, was a part of that team until very recently. The you know Where it started from was Google Brain itself started back in 2011, and we started with basically, you know, we wanted to scale machine learning, specifically deep learning up, and to explore that, to make that happen, we built some infrastructure, which was called Disbelief. And from 2011, the next few years, we saw amazing success with that. We were able to scale it up. Lots of products across Google were using it. We were doing all kinds of new research that was published, and that's been very, very useful in this area. So around 2014 was when you know, we were thinking of, okay, this has been great, but we need to fix a lot of the problems and limitations that we have with disbelief. And so Jeff Dean around that time said, okay, what if we step back and think about a new thing, right? And what would that mean? How would we think about it? And so we started talking about the next V2, so to speak. And that's how TensorFlow was born. Give us a scale, uh, an idea of the scale of the operation. How, how big is Google Brain team when it first started? You were there, Jeff was there, who else? And then at this point of transition, kind of how big was the team? Yeah, so when Brain started, Jeff was part-time. That was a 20% project for him. He had a bunch of other things going on. Andrew Ng was there. He was also 20% one day a week, and he was still a full-time professor at Stanford. And uh, there were three of us. And then, you know, three engineers, and we were joined by a couple of interns from Stanford group that Andrew had. And, you know, all of us started, this was when disbelief started. And then as we moved along, by the time we got to doing TensorFlow, the infrastructure side, the software folks who were building software, including me and a few others, we were maybe less than 10, I would say, probably somewhere between five and 10. Overall, the research group was still maybe 30 people or so. That's amazing. Going back maybe really quick to the first days of Google Brain, did you know that you were kind of creating history, that you were among the first group that would then, Andrew's gone separate ways, Jeff's now working on other things, you're working on other things, that this was kind of the beginning of a new era? 
Uh, did you have that sense? I think after a couple of years, honestly, at the beginning, we were all excited. We could see the potential and it seemed like if this worked, there's a you know a lot of impact it could have. We obviously didn't know if it would work or how it would work. And we were figuring all of that out. But a couple of years in, we had a lot more confidence that, yes, this was important. It was making a difference and we expected it to make a lot more difference. Got it. And Disbelief was an internal Google project, right? And TensorFlow... At some point, the decision was made to make this a public, open-source, community-led thing. That's correct. Disbelief started as an internal project. It was very tied to our internal infrastructure. So even if you wanted to, there was just no way we could have open-sourced that. Right. With Disbelief, it, when we were talking about TensorFlow, one thought was, okay, should we just iterate on Disbelief, et cetera? But in the end, we said, okay, doing a new project is better. There are lots of advantages to that. Once we started down that route a couple of months in, and this was, again, Jeff's idea originally that... Why don't we open source it? You know, his thoughts were coming from, we've, you know, at Google, built a lot of projects since published papers, including, you know, MapReduce, Bigtable, yeah. a whole bunch of others. Eventually, most of them, they were open source projects that came out of those, but they were never as good, even though the rest of the world started using it. In this case, we were like, if we moved out, not just published a paper, but actually published code with that, that would really move things faster for everyone. It would allow people, even outside, to move, you know, improve the pace of research really and, and speed up this whole area. Looking back, that I think has, has definitely worked out well. It has really, I think, sped up the whole space. You know, deep learning itself has shifted from, oh, just some people can do it. They, it's not like there weren't any tools before, but it was very much limited to researchers. I think now way more people do it because the tools are available. I remember when TensorFlow launched being impressed. Open source project launches are often kind of ugly. and But, but TensorFlow seemed to have some real, maybe some marketing effort. It, it had some real sheen. Maybe you could tell us about that. Was this kind of a complicated launch? Any launch, uh, you know, when you're launching from Google, I guess it's it can be complicated because it just can reach a lot more people. So you have to think through all the aspects of that. I think where this differentiated from a lot of open source projects that you see out there is we waited a tiny bit where when we launched TensorFlow was already usable. We were using it internally for a number of things. So somebody could actually download TensorFlow that day and start using it. Number two, I would say a couple of things around which are different from a lot of open source projects, I wouldn't say all, is because this was created as part of a company and, and we're seeing more of those now, there was a lot of effort in terms of the code quality, the documentation, and all of that, which you wouldn't see at a random open source project. And so just that quality difference, especially in this area, you know, versus a lot of the others, did make a big difference. And then, yes, we did talk about it. We wanted more people to know about it and see where we go. And almost from day one, TensorFlow has been on a rocket ship of interest, adoption, growth. Maybe you can tell us about what was it like having to kind of absorb and respond to all of that? Yeah, it was exciting. And uh, of course, comes with challenges as well. It's interesting you talk about the crazy growth or excitement around it, I guess, you know, on day one, right? I, when we launched, and I still remember, you know, there was early morning because we wanted to launch 9am Eastern time. So it was 6am here when we actually, the news articles got published and the people started talking about it and so on. Early in the morning, we saw a fair bit of interest. There was a you know a lot of spikes on the websites and so on. And we took bets. We, we were all in a conference room, maybe 10, 15 of us. And we were taking bets on, okay, 
how many people, how many downloads will we get the first day or how many yeah. GitHub and, you know, stars or whatever, you know, metric you pick. And I was amazed at those numbers. They definitely, you know, were way higher than what I expected, you know. I think they were higher than almost anybody's prediction. But yeah, I, I definitely wasn't expecting that kind of crazy growth on day one. Uh, of course, that continued over time and that was exciting. I think that gave both opportunities and uh, challenges. The challenges were more in terms of, okay, now we have different kinds of users. It's not like, okay, just having more users is good because we got lots and lots of feedback. Of course, then every user starts asking, could I have this feature? Could I have this feature, et cetera? And we were just starting to set up the processes for how do we even take inputs from the users? How do we even take code back in what they want to contribute and stuff? And even that took us a while because until that point, our code was actually internal. And then we had made it available on uh, Gerrit, which is a different open source tool. We eventually moved over to GitHub and we realized we want to really engage the community and make that easier. So there was that change, a whole bunch of processes around just you know managing the open source, managing the community itself. The other was the, the kinds of users, I guess, which definitely stretched us and, and in some ways continues to stretch TensorFlow. It's good that we went beyond just the research users. So this allowed hobbies to start with, but over time, you know, folks in trying to run this in production and doing different kinds of things. What that meant though was each types of users had different requirements and they were asking for different things. And that really made it hard at different times to make those choices. I mean, our team was X people and how do you do all of these things? You have to pick and choose and you have to prioritize. There were times, you know, during that journey where we felt, oh, everybody's just complaining. There are so many good things, but yeah. Of course, o- over time, that did lead to a lot more improvements. Like last year, we launched 2.0. That was because of everything we learned from these different things. So these are exciting things, right? You learn from so many different users, but it does become harder at times. That's a good point. I can imagine with such a successful launch in terms of awareness that you would have maybe some like signal to noise issues with the feedback. You might be more interested in the researchers or sophisticated users, but you're getting a lot of comments from hobbyists and kind of those in uh, almost university courses. And you're wondering, how do we make everybody happy and not disappoint everyone all at once? That's right. And over time, that is the diversity of users is what helped create the broad ecosystem around TensorFlow, though. Over time, as a team, we also realized we can't do everything. We have to work with the community on various aspects of these. And there are a lot more projects around TensorFlow that aren't just run by Google. They're run by all kinds of different teams who've built on top of TensorFlow, who've done different kinds of things. And they are amazing value. And of course, within TensorFlow itself as well, we, in some cases, end up taking specific segments of users and saw, okay, can we do something better for them? For example, a couple of years in, we saw that, yes, there is interest on the mobile side. In fact, within Google and and externally, there were a lot of people who wanted to run apps and models on mobile. And while all of TensorFlow could run there and you could deploy it, and we had examples of that, it wasn't really optimized for that. We were trying to optimize a whole bunch of other things here. So that's how we ended up creating TensorFlow Lite that was really focused on that. So, you know, we were learning 
through their years and iterating on making different things better for the community. I feel like for a lot of people at launch, TensorFlow was neural nets. Because of the mass awareness, it was kind of the way to do it. And then with time, there were other innovations in other communities, Keras and PyTorch. I imagine you felt some need to rethink how you did things at TensorFlow. Any thoughts on on how you would kind of learn and adjust as other community innovations emerged? Oh, absolutely. Both the ones that you talk about are great examples. So Keras actually had been around, maybe had started just before TensorFlow was created, and Fortiano, which was an older library. And when TensorFlow came out and seeing its popularity, the creator of Keras, Francois actually decided to map Keras to TensorFlow as well, so made it work with that. We, we knew there was a need in this area. We wanted a higher level API that made sense. And over the next couple of years, we made a couple of different attempts to create those as well. I don't think we did great with the APIs that we were building. And at some point, you know, given that Francois was at Google and he started collaborating with us to see how best we can do it, it just made sense to combine those efforts and really have one API that just made sense. And so Keras became the default API for TensorFlow as part of 2.0. That was sort of one path. On the you know the learnings from PyTorch, and that was interesting where this whole idea of imperative stuff was something we had explored even before PyTorch had come. But there was so much already in the system that people weren't really interested in trying it out until then. Once PyTorch came out, there was more interest in saying, okay, you know what? Yeah, we see some advantages if you just had that instead of the graph style that TensorFlow used to have. And so we ended up spending more time exploring how could we keep the advantages of what we had while getting some of the advantages of imperative style in there as well, because these are two very different styles, but they both come with different advantages. And I think a lot of learnings through that are what led to you know that eventual convergence of both of those in a different way with TensorFlow 2.0. So always things to learn from different APIs, different projects as well. PyTorch, for example, continue to focus on one set of users. Research really. There are people who use it for other things, but I would say research is where its sweet spot is. For TensorFlow, we made a deliberate effort that we wanted to cater to this much broader community. Yes, TensorFlow is still interesting and exciting for research because you can scale, you can do interesting things, and 2.0 made that easier. But it was important for us to be able to go from there, from an early model, all the way to all kinds of deployments, right? And, And different pieces might solve for those, but this was a need we saw broadly in the community and, of course, within Google as well. I'm curious also, I can only imagine what it would have been like. We've talked about how there was a bunch of user adoption and you had to kind of respond to that. But at the same time, the number of stakeholders for TensorFlow also feels like, I remember at Google, there was the Google Cloud team who wanted to do things around AI and ML. There was internal projects within Google that wanted to rely on the brain team and TensorFlow. And then you had these, the whole external community with his varied interests. I'm curious if you, if you can remember any moments in which those things were intention or, or how you had to kind of juggle internal teams, various ones, as well as external. Oh yeah, many of these were often intention and uh, more, not because something that we build for A is bad for B or C, that's usually not the case, but often they're intention more because we have limited resources and we can only do so much. We can't do every single thing that each of these communities is asking for. And so how do you manage that? And I think, you know, 
there were times that I would say we had more of them happier than in other times where we had less of them happier because there are trade-offs you make. That's the thing that you get with users, I guess. You know, uh, One thing I used to say, it's, it's so hard to have so many users, right? Because you're, you always have some users who are complaining. But of course, not having users, you don't really want that. <laughs> you know, among these, the way we thought about it, there were three types of users, I would say. And in some ways too, one was, between the research community and the more production heavy users, there were like different needs that each of them had. And so there were trade-offs that we were making. We saw those trade-offs sort of diverging through the you know version one over time as we went through 1.x different incremental versions where we added features for each of them, but they almost were separating out because the researchers wanted a more imperative style, whereas production folks wanted what became TensorFlow extended and a whole bunch of other things around running things in production and so on. I think with 2.0, a lot of those converged. So that that was a massive effort over the last, launched last year in 2019, but was a massive effort the year before. In terms of you know cloud versus within Google versus other open source users and et cetera, I, I would say they were less out of sync because a lot of that was about, okay, how do we make it better for production? Yes, there are always some features that, you know, within Google are tied to Google specific software that are is used internally versus externally people would use a different one. Maybe Kubernetes outside Google versus what Google internally uses called Borg. But very broadly, there weren't as many differences as you might think. So there's a good mix, I guess. That's the fun and challenge of uh, you know, working on a big project and driving that. Yeah. At the beginning of the show, you talked to us about a few people at the beginning of the Google Brain team. And I imagine the people working on TensorFlow swelled pretty quickly, and meaning uh, employees of Google. I'm trying to wonder if there's anyone who showed up and made an outsized impact that really kind of shaped the future of TensorFlow that would be worth kind of mentioning. Any interesting stories there? <laughs> I would say... With TensorFlow, it was more of a team project than like, you know, one individual driving and building everything. And yes, there are individuals and you can use, you can probably look at GitHub to see which ones have lots and lots of contributions or others, others have less to get some sense of the people who contributed more, perhaps. You know, the folks who were early on obviously had a bigger impact on the early designs and uh, a lot of those design decisions still live with TensorFlow. They're not gone. They're exciting ones. The first set of designs, and, and if you look at the paper as well, we have about 20 people or so on the paper. I would say maybe about 10 of those were on the core team, 10, 12, and then some who had been helping us out because they were early users. They were helping us from a, their perspective, what made sense, etc. But I do think it was a great team effort and continued to be. You know, of course, yes, there are a number of people who've done lots of good things. But if you if you look at specific areas within TensorFlow, you might see more specific people, I guess. Sure. I'm, I'm trying to imagine how I might respond if I was, you know, sitting on this very exciting open source project as you were. You know, th there's a pattern in industry of, of folks developing open source projects at companies and then leaving to start their own company around the, you know, uh, the Kafka team over at LinkedIn or the Kubernetes team at Google. And, and I can't help but wonder if you if you ever wondered in those early days, Rajat, if, you know, should I be leaving Google and starting a TensorFlow company? Any thoughts around that? 
<laughs> yeah, a lot of people did ask me that. And, I bet. Uh, <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, I think it was a lot of fun doing this at Google. I did eventually leave. I, I was there for over 10 years. But there are differences. Yes, there are things that you can do outside Google that you not can't necessarily do the same way other than Google. But there are also advantages to doing something like this. I think the kind of things that we were able to achieve, the breadth of that ecosystem, some of that definitely goes back to because Google itself is stretching that in so many different ways. When I was at Google, there there was, for example, this project on getting TensorFlow Lite to run on microcontrollers. And the reason it was relevant was, yeah, there is some part of Google that cares about those. Same for mobile. Same for scaling TensorFlow to really, really large-scale computers because, yes, Google has the TPU pods, which are effectively large-scale supercomputers for this. So there are advantages to being in a place like that. And sure, yes, you can go outside and build a commercial entity. And, and there's value in that, too. There are lots of users out there who could use the help in uh, you know, making it better or supporting them in the right kind of phase. But for me personally, I, I enjoyed doing it uh, while at Google. And uh, even though I left a few months ago, I ended up looking at different areas rather than just, just working on TensorFlow. Yeah, certainly. You're right. I forgot about TPUs, but there was a lot of special things happening, a lot of resources at work that were probably, you know, would be hard to find elsewhere. And then, Raja, I wanted to explore a couple other parts of the project. You mentioned how Google had previously just published research papers, and this was kind of a one of the early forays into Google doing an open source project. How did you kind of make sense of governance and other open source aspects of running a community that were kind of new to Google? So traditionally, I would say, I wouldn't say they were completely new, but yes, a lot of projects before this were much more, for example, Android, even that's open source, True. Yeah. Chrome and a number of others. But they were very strongly managed by Google, as in 90, like, a huge percentage of the development was done by Google. Yes, other companies were involved and it was open and all of that in lots of ways, but not so much where Google was like, okay, primarily driving that direction. With TensorFlow, we were iterating and figuring this out. I, actually, a project that was launched slightly before this was Kubernetes, which actually went one way in terms of governance, where they handed it off to a different governing body. And that worked fine for Kubernetes because that allowed it to scale in, in different ways, et cetera. For, for TensorFlow, we saw that this is still a very changing field. In fact, still continues to be, I would say. And even though we had conversations with folks about what would it mean to be its own in its separate governing body and so on, we felt that if we move too soon towards that, that would basically make it hard to evolve. And as we saw in that iteration from 1.x to 2.0, that was important and that, that would have been really hard. So, so that's sort of what kept us there. But that said, it was important for this project for us to involve the community and be very, very open about the decision-making and stuff. And so the last couple of years, we spent a lot of time building out the support for that. So this was a publishing roadmaps of where we're going, talking about all the different things that are happening, building groups and you know special interest groups around different areas and involving them in having those groups drive different parts of it. And we did that on a number of sub-projects within TensorFlow that are actually completely driven by those, those special interest groups. Some still have a lot of Google members as well. Others are 
90% folks outside Google and whatever makes sense for the for each of those projects, right? So over time, the push has been towards, it needs to be open, it needs to be transparent about where it's going because that's what builds the trust with the community and allows the community to really give back and, and build on that. But still allowing for the right kind of pace and change where it's needed. And so it's been that, uh, you know, a bunch of trade-offs in that sort of line that we've been uh, walking that fine balance and maintaining that in some sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate hearing that from you because I don't think there's a lot of acknowledgement. I think there's a lot of proponents about, I don't even know the right word, but kind of open governance. And I think there's also a lot of value about having a core team with aligned interests that can move quickly and make coherent decisions towards like a, a coherent end. So that's good to hear. Tell us where the project's at today and kind of where it's headed going forward as we near the end of our conversation. I think there was a time when there was a lot of expectations on TensorFlow. Are they going to support this and adjust that way and fulfill this need? And largely, I get the sense that you've kind of arrived and, and satisfied a lot of those big ideas. You talked about the special interest groups. Yeah, any thoughts on on how the project evolves from here? Yeah, there are always things happening and things changing over time, both from, if I look at this area, there are different kinds of things happening. One, the research continues to move forward. So the research is not standing still. And so there are new ideas around deep learning, around reinforcement learning, et cetera, that are being tried out by researchers, You know, some using TensorFlow itself. And then now that research needs to also move and be available to folks who want to use it in different kinds of applications, different kind of production things, et cetera. And there are, of course, complete newbies, more and more people who want to learn machine learning because they're exciting. It's going to be part of everything that you see in the future. So each of these areas are continue to move ahead, and there are changes happening in TensorFlow today to improve each of those. The special interest groups, I think, are interesting because there's a lot of, you know, if you think about different areas where people want to use machine learning, let's say is, okay, different kinds of algorithms. So it's not just about deep learning anymore. After the first couple of years, in fact, we added a support for all kinds of things. And so, you know, if you want more probabilistic methods, there's support for that. And there's a group that supports that really pushes that forward. If you want to do something around more traditional methods, say random forest decision trees, et cetera, there, there's, I believe, a group for that as well. And other things like that. Then there are more, in some sense, you might say vertical, say, people who are interested in biomedicine or some area like that, maybe genomics or something like that, and want to apply there. There might be groups around that. So we'll, we'll see different groups evolving over time and building up on those and specializing in those areas. But also at the core, coming back, 2.0, I would say, was a lot about changing how the user interacts with TensorFlow and really all the work that had been happening over the last couple of years, bringing it together and converging that well. I think the next step for TensorFlow broadly at the core is revamping the, the underlying infrastructure because that can be improved significantly and that I know there are a number of efforts going on around that as well. So we will see push in improvements across all of those. You know, will there be a significant change like a 3.0 coming up? Probably not right away, but eventually I, I think it should. And there's still a long way to go with machine learning, deep learning, any different things that you want to think of. 
And I sure hope that the folks at TensorFlow and the project itself continues to evolve as we see new things in there. Great. As kind of a final thought, some of our listeners may want to get involved or I imagine becoming a user of TensorFlow is super easy. There's a lot of kind of documentation around that. Being that it's such a big and mature project, becoming a contributor to TensorFlow is probably a bit more nuanced. What's the best way, do you think, to do that? Oh, there, there are tons of opportunities. It's possible to start with, you know, one thing might be start with one of the special interest groups or specific smaller projects that maybe you know about or you've been working or leveraging and maybe start there. But even for the core and all kinds of projects, there are often issues that would be tagged as contributions welcome. You can start by just providing or improving documentation itself. You can start with very small changes, and there's a lot of documentation on how to get involved and just getting in there. But people love to get those changes in, and it's important for the community to really give back and build on top. There's no way this project scales by just the folks at Google working on this. It has to be you know, the entire world, the, the entire community that pushes it forward. Thank you so much, Rajat, for joining us today. Um, I've had a good time. And I look forward to where you go next and where TensorFlow goes. Likewise, Eric, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me here. Take care. You can find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.